0: Okay, does everybody have a Bible? No, maybe? If you don't, there's one on the end of the row. Yeah, some of you sat on one. Um, hey, we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter one. It's actually, let me just help you out here. It's page 793. So if you have one of those Bibles that um, we have around here, and if you don't own your own Bible, you can take one of those with you. That's a gift for, uh, from us to you. Last night I dreamed, um, I kept waking up and thinking about preaching this morning. It was horrible. Like, I kept, like, every, like, hour, I'm like, oh, you know, and then I'm, like, dreaming about it. So hopefully this isn't um, a nightmare for many of you. Um, So 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Last week, we began this series in 1 Corinthians, and we talked about how this is a letter and not a book. Um, And if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back on our website and, and, and grab the podcast because we talked about a whole bunch of background and context. We talked about this guy, Paul, and who he is. We actually retraced some of his life uh, throughout the scriptures, at least the things that we know about. Um, we learned that, you know, uh, that Paul is this amazing missionary kind of guy, but initially, he was a zealous, arrogant, religious bigot. And, and that's what he was. And he was all about um, ex, you know, taking the way out of the picture, uh, the people of, of the followers of Jesus and getting rid of this little sect within Judaism. And we learned that in his life, he traveled over 10,000 miles that we know of on foot doing uh, the work of God all throughout his life. Um, and so today, what we're gonna do we're going to dive into the next part. We really just covered one verse, so this is going to take a while, but we're going, to char- we're going to kind of charge into the next part of the story, and we're going to talk about Corinth, and we're going to do some background, and it's going to get kind of nerdy. So, and I wanted to find a laser pointer, and I don't have one. Does anybody have one just on them? Like, I carry a laser pointer with me. Nobody? All right. Well, I'll point. Uh, so here we go. Um, Paul, Paul starts, okay, he's in Corinth for a year and a half is kind of what he does. And, and he's actually, this is one of the longest cities he's in when he's planting a church. The only one he spent, at least that we know of, that he spent more time in was Ephesus, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to reread a little bit and then get going, okay? It says this, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth. And we're going to stop right there for a second. To the church of God in Corinth. Let's talk about this idea of the church. Um, And I I know you guys are like, well, we know what the church is, Ryan. You don't have to tell us, but I'm going to. Because I think it's really important to remember what it is. Um, The word, and now, now here's the thing. A lot of people... It's, it's very classic in our American circles to talk about so-and-so's church. And I, and I hate that. Like, this is not Ryan's church. Um, this is not—this uh, is, this is God's church. And, and God owns this. Um, I don't own it. You don't own it. Um, it's, it's, it's God that owns it. And the reason why I'm saying that is because sometimes I think we get the word church kind of mixed up with this idea of buildings— in 501c3s. Maybe, maybe when you think of church, you think of stained glass. Um, maybe you think of skinny jeans and fog machines, you know? <laughs> maybe I don't know what you think of, okay? Um, don't look at my pants. <laughs> Eyes up here, people. Okay? Maybe I don't know what you think of when you think of church. But the word that we get the word church from comes from the Greek word ekklesia. And the first part of that word, ek, actually means from. And then klesia, that kaleo, is called. And so a lot of times our Bibles translate that as assembly or a gathering. But it's actually really deeper than that. It's actually the gathering of the called out ones. Does that make sense? What the Bible says as is church is, is this ecclesia, is the gathering of the called out ones. And, and this is what Paul is getting at. And then, he, and then he says, to the church of God in Corinth. Now this is where we're, it's gonna be really fun. So if you can hang with me for 10 minutes, okay? What we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about three things. We're gonna unpack some geography. So there's gonna be some maps. We're gonna, un- we're gonna unpack spirituality. We're gonna unpack some history. Because all these things will give us an idea of what Paul is doing. So are you guys ready to get nerdy? Smile and nod if you're not. Okay. So here we go. Um, let's, let's throw a map up there. Let's throw one of our first maps up. Let's throw the big one up. That's the one. Perfect. So here's what we've got. We've got Greece. Okay. This is ancient Greece. Um, you've got Corinth. You can see Corinth. You can see where Athens is. And here's the really, really interesting part. Can you guys see right above Corinth that says the Corinthian Gulf? Do you guys see that? Or the Gulf of Corinth? So what would happen here is, I thought this was so fascinating when I read about this. I got, I got so pumped. Ships, all of this, when there was trade across, of, across the Mediterranean, um, east-west trade, all of the east-west trade went by ship, went by boat. And in order to get, okay, stuff from Rome, which is to our left, all the way around to Athens and even further to Antioch and into Jerusalem, um, what you would do is you would sail, okay? And there was two different options for you. You could come all the way down here and you could come all the way around. This is called the Cape of Malia. And the Cape of Malia is a really treacherous place to sail around, especially when your boats weren't that big back in this day. And so what you would do, we actually have records Um, This sounds like Pirates of the Caribbean, but it says, Let him who sails around the Cape of Malia first write their will. Like it was a big-time prayer to the gods to make it all the way around the Cape of Malia. Well, technology changed, and option two, option B, which ended up being the best option, was to sail all the way up into the Gulf of Corinth and arrive at that. See that? uh, Let's get the other map up. Can we throw the other map up now? This is where it gets... Even more fun. The Gulf of Corinth up there, and you would arrive right here at this port, and you would offload your boats, and, your, and you would haul your, all your cargo and your boats across land. That's called an isthmus, okay? And, and you would cross this, and it was called the Dolcos Way. You can see that little red line. And if you go to Corinth, you can actually see where this is. They actually still have this. And you would haul all of your stuff across this isthmus, and then report and sail on. It would give your crew like three days in Vegas. I mean, Corinth. To, to, to just kind of party it up and do their thing. But this saved so much time because you don't have to sail all the way around the Gulf um, and, and to come back around. Plus, you'd probably die, right? So this is a totally better option. So, can, so imagine all of the east-west and west-east trade goes through one city. Can you imagine the money? Corinth was dripping with cash. And everybody and everybody came to Corinth to make money, to get a job, to do... to do. I mean, that was the place to be. And so you had, um, you know, every... Every day you had ships rolling in and you had, a, you had crews hauling goods and, and things happening. They called this city the Bridge of Greece. That's how big it was. It was huge. Now, here's the other thing. All the north-south land travel and goods exchanged into Greece and out of Greece went through Corinth as well. I mean, we're talking a big deal. And so this is a big deal place it's a place that worships many different gods. It's got money everywhere, and it's it's just it's nothing like Denver. Spirituality. So we've moved from um, kind of the uh, geography to spirituality. Spirituality, like this, is um, a mecca of spiritual worship. Um, there are different gods. There's the Acropolis. So on top of the Acropolis. Acropolis is the temple to uh, uh, Aphrodite. And so this is a fertility goddess and, and sexuality. Um, you had Apollos, you had Poseidon, um, you had Asclepius, uh, which is the god of medicine and healing. You had all these different gods to worship. And these, just, there's so many of them. There's the whole pantheon of Roman gods and Greek gods. This is Greece. And for many years, this was all Greece and, and worship of gods in Greece. And then you have Rome taking over Greece, and, and then you have all the Roman gods as well. The more you worshipped, the more gods you worshipped, the safer you were. So if you had travel or, or you were expecting or you wanted a child or, or you wanted uh, things to happen in your business or healing or anything, you just peppered the gods. With sacrifice in every part of your life was touched by a deity, every part. And so spiritually, this was a big place. There were temples, and there were we'll, we'll get to in chapter six, temple prostitutes. And we think to ourselves, "Oh, they were so bad, those Corinthians. That's all they knew. That is literally all they knew. This was just part of their life were the temples. And so we as Americans, and maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, you're like, Psh, those horrible Corinthians. That's just, that was life. That was regular life. Larry Hurtado wrote a book, and this is an amazing book. If you want to really get nerdy, um, it's called Destroyer of the Gods. And he wrote this in his book. He said there was a virtual cafeteria of Roman-era deities from the many nations. And in this cafeteria, you did not have to restrict yourself to any one or any number of the gods. Indeed, such an exclusivity was deemed utterly bizarre, meaning people thought you were crazy if you didn't go through the buffet, if you only worshipped one god. It was absolutely crazy. So this church that Paul is writing to is made up by a whole bunch of ex-pagans who are used to worshiping multiple gods all the time every day. I mean, their life was like uh, worship Apollos in the morning, you know, cash in on Poseidon in the afternoon, and a little Epaphrodite at night, if you know what I mean. You know, that's how this society works. <laughs> that's how it did. And so, you know, which is much like Denver. I know we don't call them gods, but we live in a culture that worships money, success, sexuality. We worship worship a whole bunch of different, we just don't call them gods. Last summer, last May and June, it dropped a message on us about gods in the Bible and how in the Bible, the gods are actually talked about as being real and how in our culture, sometimes we just go, oh, those aren't real. And we've been taught to to say there's only one God. And yes, there is only one God, but this idea that there are other spiritual beings that are fallen that actually have supernatural power. Scripture's really clear about that. And you can go back and look for that one if you'd like. Um, so Paul is actually writing to this group of people and he's drawing out of them and he's pointing them to Jesus as the only God, as the only one to worship. And this God is above all gods and that Jesus is the incarnation of the creator God. And it's this huge, huge foreign thing for them. Does that make sense? All right, last one is history, a little history behind this city, and we're almost done with the nerdy stuff. Alexander the Great uh, is in Greece. You know, he does his thing for a very short time period, uh, but he does it really well. Um, And Rome, later on, Rome has a war with Greece. Who wins? Anybody remember? Rome Rome wins. (laughs) Yes, Rome wins. (laughs) Um, this is the Roman Empire. <laughs> Just Okay, so Rome wins, and and, and, and this is back to high school, uh, freshman year maybe. Um, they level Corinth, okay? Rome levels Corinth. I mean, it is a graveyard for 100 years. They kill all the men. They carry off all the women and children into slavery, okay? That's what happens. And for 100 years, this place is desolate. 44 B.C., Julius Caesar, familiar to anybody in the room, Julius Caesar kind of rebuilds Corinth, and he names it, this is a classic megalomaniac, Colony of Corinth in honor of Julius Caesar. (laughs) That's what he calls it, I mean, because he's into himself. And um, this is really important to understand that this is a colony. Okay, this is really important. We'll get to that down the road. but um, So Rome, uh, Corinth is made a capital of the Rome of, of Greece, basically, of the whole area that we know of as Greece. And, and it's got major power vested in it. Okay, it's got, it's got huge kind of governmental power as a colony of Rome. Now, here's the thing that's super interesting. It's populated by a bunch of people called freemen, from Rome. Now, in our American culture, um, we talk about, when we talk about class, uh, we talk about upper, middle, lower class, right? Or like upper, middle class, lower class, you know, we talk about, most of the time, we talk about that in terms of money, right? How much someone makes. Obviously, there's other issues involved in that, and we don't need to get into that. But uh, usually, when we talk about um, American society and class, we talk about money, In first century Rome, it was a whole different thing. There was lineage. There was, uh, if you were born into aristocracy, all those different things. Now, freemen are people that maybe once were slaves and then earned their way out of it, okay? Or they were just not born into nobility, okay? So they could move, actually, up in class in some ways only by finances, does that make sense? So there's a whole bunch of different things. You could be a whole bunch of different nationalities, things like that, but uh, f- freemen, they were, they were basically a sect in the system, and they're one notch above slaves, okay? But this is really interesting, this part. You could become a merchant. You could become an entrepreneur. You could become an artisan as a freeman. And if you were a freeman and you were living in Corinth, you were probably making more money than most of the nobility were in Rome. Think of the Wild West here in America. And there was the railroad and, and all the gold and all this stuff. There were people who were, who were basically uh, you know, fresh off the boat as far as like immigrants. They had probably a nickel to their name and in, in no time they were, they were rolling In serious money, whether it was innovation or land or whatever. Does that make sense? And they were making more money and they had more power than the aristocracy. So here's what Corinth was Corinth was in serious, it was like the Wild West, it was out of control. Roman officials would show up, but some of the freemen had more power and influence in the city than the Roman officials did because of the money, all the money coming in and out of Corinth. And the result is it's one of the largest cities. It is out of control, pluralistic, filthy, filthy with wealth, um, progressive, arrogant, snobby. There's temples everywhere. There's passion, there's greed. Rodney Stark talks about this in his book, The Triumph of Christianity. He writes, Corinth was was the most licentious city in all of Greece, and the numbers of merchants and sailors who frequented it caused it to become the favorite port of wealthy Roman leaders. Corinth was once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. And Paul goes there to plant a church. Paul walks in. That place. And last week we talked about this. Acts 18 gives us the story of it. Paul walks in and he starts off with the conservative people, the the Jewish people who have a little synagogue in there, and they kick him out, remember? And he shakes out his clothes, and we talked about how weird that was, and he walks next door. And he walks next door to a couple of Greek guys who are, who are, who are part of this whole thing. And they begin to uh, f- fall in love with Jesus and, and their families come to know Jesus. And it starts this church of ex-pagans who are worshiping the one true God. And he goes to Corinth and then he says this after this. So the church of God in Corinth, verse 2, he, he says to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, that word sanctified is the Greek word hagios, and it means to be set apart. It means to be uh, set aside from evil and for what is good. So this idea of pulling things uh, aside for a special purpose. Uh, N.T. Wright calls it set aside for God's special purposes in King Jesus. So he's writing this letter to. He's reminding them of who they are. Okay? It's kind of like this idea of set aside. Um, I'm not a really fancy dresser. Um, And for about 20 years, I had one suit. I had this black suit. Um, I bought it for a funeral. Um, And and this suit would always hang in my closet. I mean, I wouldn't wear it to Home Depot and stuff. Like, it was set aside. And the only way you saw me in it is if someone died or if someone was getting married. Right, I mean, that's how this suit, I mean, that's this idea behind set apart. Paul is saying that you are set, that these people are set aside. He's like, to those of you who are sanctified, those of you who are set aside in Christ Jesus. Remember, he already, he's already alluding to the fact that they're the called out ones, the gathering of called out ones. And he talks about this all over his letters, okay? Whether it's Ephesians or wherever in Ephesians, he says, you are the poema of God. You are the, the masterpiece of God. And, and on and on and on, he uses this language of being set out and set apart. And, he, and this idea is he's got purpose, that, that if you're set apart and you're set aside, that you are you have purpose, that you have uh, this purpose to redeem and to be a part of restoring and to join in on everything that God is already doing. That's what he's talking about. Now, here's three things we need to know about sanctification because it's kind of a big word and, and, and some of you are like, yeah, I got this thing figured out, but sanctification, and we're gonna throw something up on the screen here, Sanctification is a process. It's not an event. It's actually this ongoing journey that you and I are on. And when does it end? When does this journey end? When, when we end. Like, it doesn't end. In this lifetime, it's something that's ongoing. It's it's what we call progressive sanctification. It's like until the day you die, your journey continues. And last week we talked about this idea of the journey begins when you believe. Okay? But that's just the part of it. The other part of it is the actual following of Jesus. And a lot of us have gotten stuck in just believing Jesus. And there's this idea of following him and that you grow more holy as God transforms you in your life. All the circumstances in your life, all those things that happen um, are a part of God forming you into who he wants you to be. The second thing we need to look at is that sanctification is is God and you working together. Um, This is really important because um, a lot of us have this idea that God is like, it's like the matrix, and I've used this analogy before where it's like, oh, I need a program to fly a helicopter. And then, like, all of a sudden, you're downloaded with this information. You've seen The Matrix, right? Okay, I don't have to. D- if you haven't seen The Matrix, I mean, like, welcome, welcome to culture in America. But, um, but, like, this idea of, like, I'm learning something new, um, and then that's going to change me that God is teaching me something new and that's gonna change me. Um, Or I can pray hard for God to just change me instantly. Um, That's one end of it. The other end of it, or it's just a lot of hard work. And and really, it's both. Godliness happens when God and and me kind of come together and mutually work on me. It's like, godliness doesn't just happen. I've found in my life, you know, it's really natural in my life is sin. That's really natural in my life. Godliness is not natural in my life, and if I want to grow more in godliness, it's it's about blood, sweat, and tears joining with the Spirit of God for the work He's trying to do in me. And this is why, around here, in this place, we've created opportunity opportunities for us to. Grow and mature and be stretched, and to have God work on us. Okay, we we're not in the business of just throwing events on the calendar. And well, like look at all the events we have on our calendar. We don't really care about that. What we do care is about what happens a year from now in your life. What do you look like? What do I look like a year from now? And so some of the things that we put on the calendar, and it sounds like we're just announcing events for you to attend are really opportunities for you to be transformed. One of those is like a cross-cultural missions experience, going to Nicaragua. We're going in June. This will stretch you. It will fundamentally change you to be a part of what God is doing in Nicaragua. It's not a notch on your belt of another place you've visited. Okay, It's a way for God to really change you and shape you and some of that change and shaping in you comes from setting aside finances to go to Nicaragua and taking time off work and making it a part of your focus and learning about Nicaragua and praying for these children and these people that you're going to meet in Nicaragua. And so if you're interested in that trip, next Sunday we're we'll having an info meeting about that. But that's, that trip is designed for us to grow and to be changed, to become more like Jesus. Does that make sense? We're also doing something called Money Lab, which is there's a budget lab coming up, and it starts this Wednesday night. This is a way for you to just bring in all of your your ideas about your own personal finances and go, okay, God, what do you wanna do with me here? How do you wanna change me here? How do you wanna sanctify me? How do you want me to be more set apart in the area of my finances? We've got a thing coming up in February where we we help shelter three homeless families. We call it the Family Shelter Initiative. And it's a a church-wide initiative that we do to feed and shelter three families that are on their way from homelessness to self-sufficiency. And if you haven't been a part of this yet, this will shape you. It will stretch you when you sleep over a night in the shelter, when you bring a meal and just spend time talking to people and hearing their stories. This will shape you. We don't do this for kicks and giggles. We do this because God is working in us. Does this make sense? It's me and God in a partnership. And the third thing is this. It's really, really important. Sanctification only happens in the context of community. I had an email this week and invited some guys to be a part of something. And one of the guys shot an email back and he's, he says, he admitted, he's like, I've come to the, the conclusion that I've gone as far as I can go in my following of Jesus on my own. I can't go any farther. You need people in your life. You need those people in your, and, and let me just say, this right here, this doesn't count. Oh. You're like, I thought I got going to church points. Nope, this doesn't count. This is the gathering of the called out ones, yes. It's really important. And I'm glad you're here. And you should try coming two weeks in a row. But here's the thing, Like, like just taste that, you know what I mean? Like it's amazing. Like, but here's the thing. This doesn't count as community. When we gather in smaller groups and we get to know each other and we get to be able to like uh, press into things in each other, we get to encourage each other. We sit in coffee, t- uh, at coffee shops and in living rooms and whether it's one-on-one or three or 10, here's the thing, you will begin to change and be radically shaped because of these people in your life. And, and they will encourage you and convict you and challenge you and pray for you and and share burden with you and root you on to becoming more like Jesus. And you'll, you'll, you'll sit in a group of people and be like, man, did he really just ask me that? Did he really just call me out like that? Yeah, because he loves you. And he sees where you're going. And he knows where that leads. So some of you might be confused because you read that verse. Let's go back to verse 2. And it says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. It sounds like it's a past event. Like that's already happened. Um, And there's a lot of debate and conversation about this. But I think one of the interesting things behind this, it's almost like um, I'll just use the analogy, better or worse, of marriage. Um, I was married on August 17th, 1996. Totally nailed it. And um, here's the thing. I got married that day, um, but I'm still working on what it looks like to be married. Um, case in point, yesterday. Maybe you know, like there's just some words, some feelings, some, some friction at times. Um, and she's getting there, but... Like, I'm just kidding, babe. Like, so um, the, here's the thing. Like, I got married on August 17th, 1996, but I'm still learning to be married. Does that make sense? Now, there are some people in the Christian world that believe in something called, uh, well, final sanctification, which is if you ever meet somebody, especially someone in a position of leadership that says they've been fully sanctified, Run. Like, seriously, run. Um, there's this wacky doctrine out there. Anyhow, so this idea that we are uh, sanctified, that we are set apart, that this has happened to us, but it's still happening. Does that make sense? And then, and then he, says, you're called, and he says, you're called to be his holy people, it says, uh, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. This is his introduction to the letter. What is Paul doing? Paul is trying to encourage them. This is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are in Christ Jesus. You are set apart. You're called to be holy. Um, and this is how you should live, because this is already who you are. Now, the thing about this is that um, if you, has anybody read 1 Corinthians like before? Yeah pretty rough crowd, right? <laughs> he's got some interesting things to say. It's going to be so much fun this year. Um, we're going to have some, some spicy mornings. <laughs> but let me just say this. Like, like, just be honest with you. Like, if you've read the letter to the Corinthians, is that church living like they are set apart, sanctified, and holy? No. They're not living that way. The beginning of Paul's letter, he's telling them what they are. But they're not living that way. And, and, and he's basically saying, this is the theme all the way through the letter. Start living like you're set apart. Start living like you're the called out ones. Start living like Jesus is your king. Now, he's writing this not only to them, but he's writing this to us because he says, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, three things and we're closing. The first one is this, the church, the gathering of the called out ones, that's us, we are called to the city. We are called to Denver. We are called to Arvada. This is where we live. This is where God has us. And this is a Cities are where culture is 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 made, is forged, is perpetuated. I used to um, go to pastor conferences, and they'd be like, "Hey, where are you from?" I'm like, "From Denver." They're like, "Oh," and they would you know give the sign of the weed smoking. You know, they'd be like, "How's that going for you?" I'm like, "It's great." And they're like, "What do you mean?" And then, you know, <laughs> but like like but we were known as for many years like we were the first state to do this. I mean, Washington, they were you know, like, yeah, yeah, we're doing it too, but we're going to let you guys screw up for about three months, and then we're going to implement our stuff, right? So everywhere I went, if you were from Colorado, you were known as, oh, right? Here's the thing. Whether you agree with it or not, that shaped culture. And that move shaped culture in our city. And um, there's so much that happens in cities all over this world. And what cities are known for 50 percent of the cities uh, of citizens in the Roman Empire were in major major cities. that's why Paul went places. now what do we do about culture? there's different views on this. there's a guy named Leslie Newbegin that talks about culture Christ and culture and he has this really really like heady philosophical conversation about what Christians should do in culture should we run away from culture and like make a little like uh, like encampment you know somewhere and not watch TV and, and like like sew our own clothes and you know like be totally away from culture um, then there's the argument of well we should totally get involved in culture and be just like culture and all those different things and and it is just an amazing conversation if you're interested in having that with me and some others and, and reading this book. How, and this is Ryan talking right now can I just say a few things? Um, this isn't Jesus but this is Ryan talking. Here's what I would love followers of Jesus to be about in culture. I would love followers of Jesus to make amazing movies, not Christian ones. I would love followers of Jesus to make amazing music, not necessarily Christian music. I would love followers of Jesus to make amazing food, not Christian food. Those stupid testaments just drive me nuts come on. I would love followers of Jesus to make amazing business practices and amazing art and amazing technology, not Christian technology. Does that make sense? Like, how come it's got to be Christian? Just a little rant from Ryan. You can agree or disagree. But I'm a little tired of Christians whining like victims instead of living like missionaries. And there's this idea that we're called to the city. We're called to a culture. We're called to be a part of it in the midst of it. But there's a tension, right? Here's the other part of that tension. We're also called to be sanctified from the city. So Paul says this. He says, it's pretty cool. He says, for those in Corinth. And then he says, sanctified in Christ Jesus. You hear the word in, twice. In Corinth. In Christ Jesus, there's a tension. There's a huge tension. Augustine called it the city of God. We're like this cloister in the city. And there's this this idea that we're different from the culture around us. That that we, we have a different view of money and sexuality and power and identity. But yet we live in the midst of culture. Not a subculture, but an outpost, there's a difference. A subculture is mainly defensive. Like, we've got to keep our values and we've got to keep people out that are going to infect us, right? But then an outpost is a whole different ballgame. An outpost is, is we are in the middle of this different geography and we're for this different geography, but we are set apart. Does that make sense? It's a tension, Right? And you can hear the tension in Paul's voice. And there's two different crowds. There's this Corinthian crowd that's really anything goes, right? And there's temple worship and temple sacrifice and all these different things happening. And then there's this other version that says, no, we need to escape from all that. And and Jesus actually shows us, and and Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, uh, that Jesus actually shows us that you can be um, in the midst of culture and still remain holy that you can love people just passionately and still be holy. In Corinth, but not of Corinth. In Denver, but not of Denver. See, it's way easier to just go to church than it is to live like a missionary. The last thing I'll say, and we're gonna take some communion together. We're called to be the community. We're called to be a community in this city. Like we're called to be uh, in relationship with each other and and encouraging each other and stretching each other in the midst of our culture. And there's this raging culture around us. And if you think that it doesn't have some level of its claws in you, you're crazy. We talked about this during the money series. It's, there's an inertia to money. And if it it, it has us a little bit, it, we're we're feeling it. And we just I'm just talking about one aspect. If you don't think culture has, if you don't think there's some temple worship and some idol worship and some God worship happening in your heart because of what our culture says and speaks and does, you're crazy. So we're called to be in community together. Why? Because this culture rages around us. And there's a different way forward. There's a different kingdom. There's a different king. And it's beautiful. Let me pray. God, this morning.